Welcome to this week's episode of Stand Out, growing in the organizing and productivity profession brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Every episode, we will learn from NAPO members and subject matter experts as they share their successes, challenges, best practices, proven strategies, industry developments, and more. And now, here's your host, Claire Kumar, NAPO member since 2010. Hello, everyone. I'm Productivity Catalyst Claire Kumar and thrilled, as you know, to be the host of NAPO's podcast, Stand Out, all about growing your organizing and productivity business. So today we are addressing a really important topic that is finally consistently on our radar as it needs to be. We'll be digging into DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a key NAPO initiative for 2021. We're recording this interview on March 10th, two days after the International Women's Day, a day that highlights that while we've come a long way, there is still a long way to go. We are following the year that brought the Black Lives Matter movement to the forefront of our thinking. And we're several years now after the Me Too movement took off in October 2017. Systemic challenges exist around every corner. Look at our Canadian defense situation right now. We have a hot topic going on right there. It can no longer be ignored. And I would suggest that the scope of inclusivity itself could be more inclusive, as the sensitive amongst us bring inclusivity of temperament into the consideration. Reflection and mindset shifts are important first steps, but what's most important is action. I am so very pleased to have our distinguished guest, Barbara Polk, today with me to dig into this topic. We are going to explore why DEI must not just be a moral imperative, but move to a business imperative. I want to shine a light on our guest, Barbara Polk. She is a DEI thought leader and facilitator with over 25 years as a business executive with experience in human resources. So she gets people. Operations leadership. She knows how to get things done. And board governance. She understands how things work. She's a global C-suite executive with a Fortune 500 company. She's had multiple board of director positions, and she is the founder and consultant at Amplify People Advisors based in Washington, D.C. Barbara says, organizations that proactively put policies in place to create safe and respectful interactions promote environments that will improve productivity, engagement, retention, and ultimately financial performance. So a big warm welcome to you, Barbara. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Claire. I'm happy to join you today. So let's dig into this. Let's start off the top with why is diversity, equity, and inclusion and paying great attention and giving action to that, why is this important for our businesses? So I think it's been important since probably the concept of people with different viewpoints or perspectives I think it's just a broader conversation because all of the things that make us different and unique shouldn't be sort of ignored and we shouldn't be thinking how we can be a more homogenized society, but rather how do we capitalize and exploit all of our various talents, perspectives, ideas, et cetera. I think I sum it up with my favorite quote on diversity is by Victor Hugo. And he says, no force on earth can stop an idea whose time has come. And 
when you think about diversity, it covers so many issues that organizations and just we as people as a collective struggle with. So whether it's anti-racism, gender equality, pay equality, anti-harassment, all of those things are components of how you create an inclusive, respectful environment so that your customers feel welcome, so that your employees feel included and can bring their authentic self to work, so that women can be viewed as true equals. And so I'm very passionate about this topic. As you mentioned earlier, there have been a number of movements that have sort of driven it to the forefront, whether it's Time's Up, Me Too, or Black Lives Matter. But I think these are topics whose time should have probably been on the table and discussed more broadly for decades. And now we find ourselves in such an unprecedented time of change. And I'm glad that the door is opening to have these kinds of discussions. I'm thrilled too, because yeah, the issues have been longstanding. I think I dealt with sexual harassment in Well, I was 23 years old, so around 1991. And it was the time when policies were just being written about it. I remember speaking to our director of HR, who was a woman, and she met me with her arms folded, playing corporate defense. And it was a rather horrible experience, actually. So we've needed it for a long time. Why do you think now, why do you think now we have an appetite for it? Why why do you think it's shifted to be something we're ready to do something about and not let go of, not let fade from that front page? I think it's a number of things. I think while we don't have parity as we should on boards or in the most senior positions, I think we have enough that this conversation and this dialogue, particularly as it involves women, is sort of rising to the level of discussion. As it applies to other related diversity pieces, whether it be race or ableism or affiliations, it would almost appear that the world is convening in such a way that all of these issues during such a polarized time, I think we've all reached some degree, a bit of a tipping point in our tolerance or intolerance of it. And that natural friction causing the dialogue that I believe desperately needed to occur As a mother of three daughters, I would tell you that I've evolved in my perspective. Similar to the example that you shared, I remember being a mentor and talking about how do I teach women to navigate the corporate environment and the corporate structure to not to perhaps take away from their natural ability or their desire to shine, but how to somehow fit in how to not make themselves smaller, but make themselves indispensable. And there's been many studies recently that have shown that if we stay on the same trajectory, it will be 200 years before we have gender parity on boards, for example. So my advice has really changed. I'm asking people to respectfully challenge, to be disruptive in a way that opens the door. And I think a lot of people are in that place on a variety of issues all at the same time. I love that. Be disruptive. I mean, I think that was the social meme that was being passed around for International Women's Day. I choose challenge. I choose to challenge. And what are you challenging? And I think it's, you're right, it's challenging the status quo because that wasn't working. So we definitely need to show up differently. And we need to show up, I use the hashtags quite often, speak up, speak out. And for a long time, fear of consequence. And it's not that the consequences have gone away. It is still there and it is still loaded. 
But the more people who are brave enough to speak up and speak out, the more we challenge that status quo. And then the more people around us are feeling able to speak up and speak out too. And it pertains to so very many issues and challenges. So I think that's hugely important. I wonder about also the concept of allyship, because we've started to see not only the speaking up and the speaking out, but the, hey, you, if you're standing by and watching this, you're complicit. So do you want to be complicit or do you want to be an ally for supporting this evolution? I think it's important that it's relatable. Often when I train, particularly I find it interesting when I train white males, for example, detached from this sort of concept because they can be because of their privilege. And so I try to make it relatable. I recently had a session I did with a board and I asked one executive who was really struggling with the concepts that I was discussing to close their eyes because everyone may have a wife, a mother, a daughter, a niece, an aunt. And would you want them to be in a work environment where they'd be subject to harassment or wouldn't be given the same opportunity or treated badly because of some component that was unique about them? What if they were disabled? And so we just went down the whole gambit. And I just said, now open your eyes and tell me you don't care. And it doesn't matter. And that's what allyship is, that when you have the opportunity to speak up and to create a space that is both empathetic, kind, fulfilling, replenishing for staff, remember that that could be someone's mother, someone's aunt, someone's sister, someone's niece, Think about it from that perspective. Don't they deserve the same opportunities? That's a little mini meditation and loving kindness to be able to drive up compassion, which is one of the leadership skills we need for sure leading people, but we need this in our own lives. And this will bring us to that place of allyship and bravery to stand up. But I love your point of making it relatable. Otherwise we have the sense of otherness. Well, it's somebody else's problem. Until something really knocks on your doorstep, you don't necessarily go to the issue. I'll say that this happened personally to me this weekend because there's a drug epidemic out there in North America. And unfortunately, this very weekend, it came much closer to my family than it ever has before. And a young person was lost this weekend. Sorry and to hear that. It's very tragic. And it invited me to think about the whole problem more deeply. And it brought up for me that there's a little, I don't know, after a year, and we're recording this since the pandemic was basically declared, we have the potential for some compassion fatigue. And it's something to watch out for because I think compassion is there within us every day, but it does take reserve. So we have to be taking care of ourselves and the way we are so that we can find that compassion when we need it. Depleted individuals don't have the reserves to stay in a place of compassion because compassion is generally inherently giving. So I think part of the whole thing highlighting to me was, oh, I haven't chosen to think about this particular challenge. I'm invited to now, and what can I bring to it? And I thought one of the greatest gifts that I could bring to it was a bit of awareness because this is one of the things that's not talked about this challenge. I mean, I talked to the special constable at the university. I said, am I going to read about this? Is the university going to tell the school population that someone in the community suffered? How do we spread that? And I think the same applies to awareness. 
if we don't talk about the diversity, equity, inclusion issues and the challenges that are out there, if we don't keep it part of the conversation, then it's too easy to ignore and it becomes difficult to talk about. So the more we talk about it, the better. Absolutely. And I'm very sorry for your loss. This sort of aligns when I say we bring our whole selves into the workplace, bad or good. And I certainly think we see enough evidence in our news feeds and social media. We see probably more bad than good, unfortunately. But what's sort of interesting about what can happen in sort of the business community is that everyone has their story, everyone has their perspective. And the beauty of talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, our unconscious bias, the concepts of allyship is, as I mentioned before, there is something there that can inform you to be a better leader, that can inform you to be a better peer or colleague, that can inform your actions towards networking and building your business. And if we challenge and understand our blind spots and are open to learn, it really can provide endless opportunity for business growth, efficiency, you name it. I often find that some of the best leaders that I've come across are those individuals who actually are very observational and listen and understand and appreciate those differences and understand that each person has a unique type of value that they bring into their space. I've had some really interesting conversations with colleagues and even in a training realm on Black Lives Matter, for example. And it just brings out a broad swath of emotions. I think the unfortunately named defund the police. I think it that was a, bad, bad a different connotation. Bad but, sales job for a, exactly. an important concept. But what I tell people is that think about it from this perspective. Black males that may be in your life as an employee, as a customer, as a neighbor. They carry a burden and they carry an experience that many people don't have to experience at all. By the time someone may get to the office, they may have experienced three or four microaggressions, whether it's being followed around the store when you're trying to buy something, feeling anxious if a police car is behind you, even if you've done nothing wrong, all of those things. And then they come into the office and then bombard it with, let's get going, let's get the day going. And they're experiencing trauma. And I could say that for our Asian American colleagues who are bombarded with slurs and being blamed for a pandemic or being asked where are they from. So when you think about what diversity and awareness truly means, it means you're really seeing people. If you are able to open your mind and open your eyes to that, you can be better and you can be not just a compassionate leader, but a leader who truly understands what motivates their staff, what motivates people to want to be in their circle from a customer perspective or a member perspective. And I feel for many people, it's an untapped sense of sort of activity and outreach. It invites this sort of state of curiosity and openness, invites an incredible up-leveling of the ability to connect with more people. So I can absolutely see how it pretends into the way we run our businesses, whether we're, like you said, networking, and we're going to get to know a broader cross-section of people. Maybe we should be looking out for the people we haven't spoken to in a space before. Sometimes I'll make myself use my mouse with my left hand instead of my right to force a different 
way of thinking. Think of the opportunities that could open up to you because you're trying a different approach and broadening that sense of inclusivity. You mentioned the term unconscious bias, and we all have it. It's sort of a natural human condition, and it sort of is our brain ordering things and making sense of the world and in some ways trying to pave a cognitive path for our our processing of these things, but it also closes doors in its construct. Can you talk a little bit about what we can do as individuals to uncover what our biases might be, where there might be limiting things? Like, how do we know what we have a bias about? How do we learn this? How does it show up? Well, I think the good news is that never before are, there's all sorts of literature out there. There are TED Talks. There's even the Harvard Implicit Bias piece where you can go online for free and you can take a series of quizzes that help identify where your biases are. And it could be religion. It could be gender roles. It could be race. It could be ableism. And I encourage people to do it. And they're doing this huge study to see how biases are trending. And I will tell you, even I, who I feel I'm pretty well informed and trained in this area, have been able to really understand my blind spots a bit better. For me, for example, I have a bunch of 20-something children. And I think what I found when I started to sort of check my biases and frame them, that besides being the mom, take the mom hat off, I do have a bias towards I know better or I know more than someone younger than me. And I really had to stop and think about that because quite frankly, there have been more than one occasions where my small group of my study, they have taught me something. They've taught me about whether it's popular culture, technology tips. Oh my gosh, technology off the charts, right? Right. A viewpoint or a perspective that I wasn't looking at the world through their lens So I really try very diligently to sort of check and frame what I'm doing when I'm talking to people of different age demographics, which is important right now because in the workplace, it's very common to have 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40, 50, 60. People aren't leaving the workplace in the traditional cycles that they have done in the past. So unconscious bias to me is once you do the diligence and understand more about what it means, and some of the bias makes sense. I'm glad that my brain sort of cycles and sort of says, okay, this is dangerous. I probably shouldn't walk at night at 10 p.m. by myself in the woods that I know nothing of that's very remote. Your brain is sort of saying, danger, danger. It's putting out clues to you. Yeah, the biases were there to be helpful, but they can get in the way. Right. So we all have sort of cultural affinities. So we feel more comfortable with people who share similarities to us than we do with people who have differences. We start to make assumptions. Well, that person looks like they're Latinx or Hispanic. I wonder if they speak English. This is a Black woman. I literally kind of laugh sometimes because if I list all the different experiences and things that I've heard over the years, they're all endemic of the unconscious bias that that person carried. And so they'll say something and it's not ill intent most of the time. It is they haven't framed their biases and no one's told them or they haven't done their own self-awareness study to know that it's inappropriate to say or that it's making presumptions or buying into stereotypes. So first and foremost, I think it's important to do your homework and understand around. If you live in a neighborhood where most people look like you, you go to church and most people look like you, if you look at your friend groups and most people look like you, when I say friend groups, it shouldn't be, I'm a black female 
and I have one Asian friend, so I'm not biased against Asian people. You really have to think about what that means. It's not checking the boxes. Once you've done that, then you can frame your bias and you can check yourself in those moments where your brain is rushing to a conclusion that isn't really fair. It takes a little patience. It takes some pausing and then even just asking yourself, is that assumption I just made, is that reasonable? Do I need to do a little bit more information to find out if it's reasonable? (laughs) On what grounds did I make that? There's so much evidence of this, even in the language that we speak, because we just absorb a pattern or a phrase. And once we uncover the history of that phrase and we really understand where it came from, oh, it turns out that that doesn't hold what I want to express at all. So there's a lot to look at all the time. I just wanted to restate that it was the Harvard implicit bias test. Is that what it was called? Because I'm definitely looking that up right (laughs) after. We'll put that in the show notes for sure so that you can grab that and check it out as well because I wasn't aware of that. It comes up usually for me if there's something uncomfortable. I'm noticing a discomfort like, oh, or I jumped to something and I notice I've, oh, I'm feeling like I need to question it. Well, maybe there were some wrong assumptions or some thoughts that needed to be adjusted there. What can we say when we're with a client, with a colleague, and we see evidence of unconscious bias? I often talk a lot about playing a graceful defense. So say you're witnessing something and you know it's out of line. How do we do this? in such a way that we are this disruptive energy, but we're not a demeaning energy. We're not putting somebody on the defensive because as soon as they go on the defense, they're not listening anymore. There's a fight stance going on. Do you have any thoughts that you can offer us? Absolutely. I think there's a couple of strategies that you can employ. First and foremost, I think how much does this relationship mean to me? So if I'm at the grocery store and someone says something to me that's inappropriate, I'm probably not going to press pause and engage in a lengthy conversation about that person's bias or something that they said that I found inappropriate. I don't have the resilience and most people don't to engage the world in deep conversation. I think you have to make sure that you can kind of sustain your mental sanity. So I think some of this, and I think often people who fall into diverse categories feel that fatigue as well. If they had to sit and explain to every single person they ever met in life, every facet of their bias, it would be exhausting. So one, you got to think about how much am I vested in this conversation? The second is, I think you have to discern whether or not it's an issue that you should address in the moment, or if it's an issue you should address privately. I often will say to folks that if you're in a meeting and someone says something, and it, maybe it's not on a scale of one to 10, a 10, and you have a relationship with that person, it might be prudent to take them aside later and say, I really value your friendship, but you said something in a meeting that just, it landed poorly on me. And likely the person will say, well, I didn't mean it. There was no ill intent. It doesn't really matter. The words came out and they had impact. So I want to talk to you about that impact. Nine times out of a 10, I think those conversations go well. If you are in a large setting, potentially. And I think there's a lot of variables. It depends on your status in the room. I wouldn't expect an entry-level analyst to confront the president of their organization. So you got to pace yourself, but that's where allies step in. So if you have allies, and that's why I think training and having open dialogue about this is important because it shouldn't always be the person that's experiencing an unfortunate incident shouldn't always have to carry a burden to resolve it. So allies 
can play a key role in speaking up and saying, you know what, I don't think we've allowed Susan to speak in this meeting because we're in a meeting where they never call on the women. Or let's press pause because I think there's a better way to state our issue. So there are different strategies that you might employ there. And I think the other component that is really important is that you have to sort of sometimes lean into discomfort. My superpower, I've been told, is that I'm really comfortable with awkward silence. I'm really comfortable with it. And I think we can't be in a rush to make everyone feel better about something. It's almost at times, if you do make a comment and someone has a reaction, you start to try to pull it back. And I think bravery and respectfully disagreeing with something or bringing something, you have to sort of build up that resiliency. And it is really important. And I get that it is brave, but I really have found that the outcomes are the fear that drives us not to say it or the fear that gets us into this sort of awkward space. I say lean into it because the outcome may be positive, not negative. And if it is negative, it was negative to begin with. I love that. I often talk about, you're saying lean into it. I talk about dancing and discomfort. Expect it. And I think there is something to practicing it because when you do it, it's the same as if we're organizing with somebody and they don't want to give away their collection of 10,000, whatever. (laughs) But they have to dance in the discomfort of that moment. And we have to be patient while that's processing. And so there's a similarity here. We have to be patient while there's some emotional discomfort and allow for the growth through that because that's where we're coming up with a different way of thinking. Sometimes it could be as simplistic as someone says something and you say, what did you mean by that? And that's beautiful. It's hard for someone to sort of be defensive. You're actually seeking to understand. Sometimes maybe you misconstrued what they were saying. So sometimes before reacting, you may want to ask that question. What did you mean by that statement? I just want to make sure I'm processing it correctly. That's a beautiful one. That can start some interesting dialogue as well. And it may actually check that person. Oh, wow. Maybe I could have said it differently or maybe my unintentionally offended. You're inviting pause. You're inviting that pause and reflection. And sometimes it's a word. It's just the wrong. It could be, oh, I didn't mean that word. I got caught with this last week just talking to my partner and I used the word smart and he came back and said, I don't know about that. I'm like, it was the wrong word. You know what? Thank you. Because I used the wrong word. I meant capable. It wasn't about intelligence. It was about a capacity. I often hear those sorts of things happening all the time. Conversations with groups about let's all go to this golf course. It used to be a plantation. It's beautiful. And I'm like, so connotations, some people might be big white building pillars oak trees with things, but for a black person, it invokes slavery. Let me get off the reservation. Someone who's indigenous may feel very differently about that terminology because going off the reservation for a Native American could be, I got shot when I went off the reservation because I was confined somewhere. And it doesn't mean that we're talking about being so politically correct that you can't say anything wrong. It just means that you have to think about, there were times when we said things about women you got, oh, you're pregnant. You must quit your job. And like we don't do those things anymore. So it's not that hard to just be mindful about what comes out of your mouth if you care. There's a fantastic book actually talking about the etymology of the female language and 
it's interesting how a lot of it is very negative and not a lot of male words are. The book is a, a bit of a provocative title. It's called Word Slut. So there you go. There's a loaded word. But it's an interesting exploration into language, which I think has a place here because we have to be, number one, patient to allow for this process. And that's a tough thing in what I call rush culture. We're like, instant gratification. I want my Amazon practice in two hours. What's half a day now? Forget about half a day. I want it in two hours. We're in a culture that celebrates speed and fast conclusions, but at what cost? So we've got to invite patience and reflection. So that has been so wholly valuable. What, what do you sense the future holds for us as we now collectively explore this? I wish I could say that I had a crystal ball and I think everything's going to work out wonderfully. I see years, decades of this continuing conversation. I mean, if you think about civil rights, I mean, many of the things that laws were written, we're now reversing them. And there's conflict about that. Women often, because of the pandemic, we've lost women who've had to come home to care for children and work and found it unbelievable. The poverty in our country, the polarization about politics. So I'm an optimist. And the fact that I can have these kinds of conversations, I speak to folks from all walks of life, companies who are extraordinarily conservative, not even particularly diverse, but are seeking to know and understand how they can sort of navigate what this new normal is. You see a younger generation who are far more challenging about everything from climate. They've grown up with 9-11. They've grown up with all of this conflict, now an unprecedented pandemic. I suspect that the tolerance and the tipping points are going to come much sooner for them and they will demand change and they will want to work in places and frequent organizations and purchase things from companies that are aligned with what they believe is right for their world. And the last thing I will say is the world is much smaller. So we can know what happens overseas. We can understand and relate to something that's happening with farmers protesting in India The collective is just far more knowledgeable and aware than I was at 25. And that's going to make a difference in the leaders who are creating businesses and even consumers who are very sophisticated about their power. Yeah, and sort of a demand for transparency and an alignment of values, I think, is going to be sought to your point. So yeah, there's a great book I read on the inclusive leadership. I think it's Jennifer Brown, but she talks about There are different areas of life where we're progressing at different rates through our lack of bias and our sense of inclusivity. So you might have progressed very well in one area, but are on the beginning stages. And the beginning stages is awareness. So I mentioned sensitivity to temperament off the top. We're in the beginning stages of getting people to understand this as an area that needs some attention, understanding, accommodation, allyship, all of that kind of thing. And there are other issues that we've been longstanding and we're still on a journey. So exactly. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think as individuals and business owners, we have an opportunity to think really carefully about what is important to us and what we're going to speak up and speak out about, what we're going to stand for in our businesses, and what we're going to invite our clients to partake in, in terms of a culture that we're experiencing. It's part of your brand. It is part of how you're showing up in the world. So there's no detachment now. What you stand for matters. And 
I invite you all to think about that with the insights that Barbara has shared with us today. I loved in particular the, what do you mean by that? That's a really gentle way to invite more understanding and to interject that pause. So that's my big takeaway along with the Harvard implicit bias test, which I'm <laughs> definitely going to dive into. So Wonderful. Barbara, I want to thank you so sincerely for myself and for all of the listeners who are going to no doubt be steps ahead on their journey to greater appreciation for diversity, equity, and inclusivity, and how that is going to become part of their lives and part of their business. Well, thank you, Claire. It's been a pleasure spending time with you. And I will hopefully hear back from you. You can talk to me about what you learned about your biases. I think it's going to be a really interesting journey to explore. So I'm glad you were able to take that tip away. So thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. I'm definitely coming back to you. I'm launching my own podcast and I have questions for you about that too. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Standout. I hope you enjoyed it. And like I said, we'll take away some gems that you can integrate into how you show up in the world in a more inclusive fashion. I invite you to find more episodes at napopodcast.com. You can find all your players there. You can even find our YouTube channel there. And just a note, the YouTube video always has a bonus question. So check out the YouTube channel if you're a visual learner and definitely stay tuned for that content. So until next time, please be safe, be kind, and enjoy your journey. That's all for today's episode of Stand Out, brought to you by NAPO, the National Association of Productivity and Organizing Professionals. Be sure to visit napo.net to join, learn more about our educational offerings, local chapters, and more.